when our guests come dine with us, they uh, they both eat and they drink. Beverage plays an important role in the experience we're providing. And yet, as I look back over the 160-some episodes that I've recorded of this show, I'm, I'm realizing that I've, I've sort of ignored beverage, and it's not uh, purposeful. In fact, I'm sort of embarrassed that, uh, that I have ignored it so much, but uh, no more. As we move forward, I'm going to be focusing in, especially over the next several months, uh, on beverage, right? Because beverage uh, has a lot to do with the experience we're providing. It can help fortify a concept, and most importantly, it can help anchor our profitability. So on today's show, uh, I'm uh, turning a new leaf, uh, starting a new uh, new focus here. I'm sitting down with Jonathan Howard. John is working with Chef Sean Brock down in Nashville on two new projects, uh, a place called The Continental and another uh, new restaurant called Audrey. And he's going to share some insights and perspectives over his 15 plus years in the industry and talk about uh, the things he's doing there and sort of the, the pitfalls that uh, that a lot of bars uh, run into and, and how you can create a profitable, successful bar program. Don't go anywhere. It's a great conversation there's an old saying goes something like this you'll only find three kinds of people in the world those who see those who will never see and those who can see when shown this is restaurant strategy a marketing podcast for anyone who's looking Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. My name is Chip Close and this is Restaurant Strategy, a weekly podcast all about helping chefs and operators build more profitable restaurants. Each week we toggle back and forth between a monologue style format and an interview, but the goal is always the same, to take complicated concepts, right, both on the the marketing side and the operation side, make them both understandable and actionable. Why? Because like I always say, information is only as valuable as the action it inspires. Now, I've spent my entire adult life working in hospitality. I love this industry. I love the work I do with this industry. Each and every day, I have the privilege of working with chefs and operators all over the country, passionate restaurant owners who deserve to have a restaurant that works as hard as they do. If you're listening to this podcast, it means you're looking to level up. It means that things aren't exactly the way you want them to be and you're looking to get better, and that is to be applauded. But if you are tired of razor-thin profit margins and ready to take the next step, then I want you to consider joining my Restaurant Recharge Coaching Program. It starts on May 1st. You've got eight weeks, right? This program is eight weeks to turn your restaurant around. We systematically work through every single area of your business to get things in line. So we cover marketing, operations, leadership, staffing, and more. I show you the right way to set goals and the best way I know to put systems in place to help you reach those goals. Can you commit 30 minutes a day to turning your restaurant around? That's it, 30 minutes of work that you're gonna do on your own And then once a week, we've got 60-minute group coaching calls, right? Every single Wednesday, coaching calls with me and a bunch of other smart operators who are going to help you level up. We do that for the two months, all May and all June. Are you ready to make a change to have a restaurant that delivers the kind of profits you deserve? Then join us. We've got a handful of spots left, and if you want, please apply. Visit restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash restaurant dash recharge dash application. As always, that link is in the show notes. All right. So my guest on today's show is a guy named John Howard. John is a friend of mine uh, and a colleague. Uh, we've known each other for more than a more than a decade, I guess 15, 16 years at this point. 
And uh, he's a bar guy. He started off as a bartender, uh, has done a ton of service. He moved over into the management side. He's worked on the brand side, on the sales side. So he brings a lot of perspective uh, to this conversation. I want to talk all things bar, how a bar can help um, uh, solidify the identity uh, of, a, of a property, of a concept, and how a bar can really uh, help solidify the profitability of an entity. We're going to get into all of that and more. First, John, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, bud. It's going to be good. It's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to this. Okay. So you moved here to New York in 2005. We got to know each other shortly thereafter. We sort of mm -hmm. crossed paths uh, a bunch of different times. And then, I don't know, six years ago or so, you left the city to move uh, back down south. You're from Alabama. You mm -hmm. uh, moved to Nashville to, to do some pretty cool things down there, which we will get to. But for the sake of the listeners, uh, roll me through your, re uh, your resume. From when you arrived here in New York, uh, everything you did, and then what brought you to Nashville and what you're doing down there, uh, just to give uh, people a sense of kind of where you've been and what you're up to. I moved to New York in 2005 to be an actor uh, and just needed work. So I started working behind a bar as a bar back for Doug Quinn. I bartended in college, but nothing, nothing like this was just one of the best indoctrinizations to New York City that I could have had was being a bar back at PJ Clark's on 55th and 3rd on St. Patrick's Day. Uh, and shortly after that, moved on to BLT State where I was a captain and moved up to be a bartender and then eventually a bar task force guy working with Fred Dexheimer to go around and open and, and set up bars, help with develop the beverage program, bar programs um, in Atlanta, Miami, Hong Kong, so forth and so on during that very aggressive expansion. And at some point in that process, I became the corporate bar manager or beverage manager um, overseeing all the bars for all 16 properties. And then I just felt I felt like I want to get back to the bar. So, you know, I was 25. I had a lot of energy and the suit thing wasn't really me at that time, uh, which <laughs> things have changed. But <clears throat> so I, I left BLT and went uh, to Gotham as a captain and bartender, moved on from there to um, work uh, with Naren Young. And so we opened first I started with La Conda Verde. At, with Naren, and then we went on and moved and opened the, the Dutch, both with Chef Andrew Carmelini. Then we moved on and did Saxon Parole, where we won World's Best Restaurant Bar at Tales of the Cocktail. Uh, after my time there and all the setup, they asked me to go on and be an AGM at Public. So I was over there for a bit before going back to the bar and opening American Whiskey in New York, uh, 27th and 8th, which was this massive 6,500-square-foot um cocktail slash sports bar situation which was extremely yeah. busy it was, it was power crowd it was, it was fun so much fun uh, biggie's tournament was a big deal for us over there and then il buco alimentari uh before you know realizing hey i would like to take these things i've learned from these amazing people back to the south i was very knowledgeable about what's going on all over the country, you know, details of the cocktail and then the uptick of sort of the bar world. And I didn't see much action happening down in the southern part of the country. So, so I want to go down and give as much information as I can that I have learned from people. And so I come back down here about six years ago. Uh, no one would hire me because everyone thought, oh, he wants my job. It's like, <laughs> I, I, really, I really don't. <laughs> so, um, started working at this really great little bar called William Collier's connected to a music venue and um, worked there until uh, the Solar Sisters who were, you know, Alexis Solar helped start the cocktail scene in Nashville with her bar 308. I mean, started it. 
Um, and so when she asked me to come on to her th- second bar, Old Glory, I said yes. So I wouldn't open that until I went to run all the bars at the Kempton Erickson Hotel. During that time, I was doing a lot of competing. So yeah, I won the Woodford Manhattan Experience for the country in 2016. That's Bacardi Legacy National Finalist, the Shivas Masters National Finalist, World Class National Finalist, which actually led me to being a part of the Viaggio Reserve team. So taking the supplier job, you know, I, I had just <clears throat> I was about to have a little man, and so I wanted to have very sustainable income and good insurance, right? Sure. So I did that for two years, which opened up the curtain to me to understand how that side of the business works, and now I'm able to understand how that side of the business works, so I I can utilize that information to my benefit and um then decided that i they changed the program and i I wasn't really into what the new program was so i left went back to the bar felt more at home there if i can be honest about it uh and then that's when i got hooked up with chef brock yeah we opened the continental almost a year ago and then audrey in october and we're gearing up now to open june uh the summer yeah, so uh, Chef Sean Brock, uh, those of you guys, uh, obviously, m- many of you will know him, and anybody who doesn't, uh, just just Google him and you'll see. Uh, this guy's the real deal. Yeah. He's been around for a while, working at a very high level for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a cool little, uh, it's a cool little thing you've uh, you've landed yourself into. And I want to get to that. I want to talk about the Continental, everything else that that's going on. Uh, because offline, before we hit record, we, we were talking about a lot of the stuff that you're doing. But I want to build up to that because we've got tons and tons to talk about uh, over what I hope will be about an uh, about an hour. I'm gonna yes. I'm gonna try really hard to keep it to just an hour because there's a lot <laughs> to talk about. So right. I was telling John before we hit record that we've been doing the show now for three years, and I've sort of uh, woefully ignored beverage. And beverage is, again, a great way to fortify the identity of any, of any concept, of any property, because we both eat and drink. Um, but, but perhaps more importantly, um, it's a great way to fortify the profitability of a restaurant. Uh, the joke goes, right, we can only fit so much in our stomach, but we can pretty much always have another drink. And obviously, I'm not talking about over-serving. Responsibly. Responsibly. We can always, we can always get them because the key to profitability right the key to maximizing revenue is through second beverage sales we know this this is not um this is not anything i invented this has been passed down for about 50 years that often people are ready for a second drink they just can't find us we're just not we're just not there when they're ready for us we're just not good at getting them another thing we're not good at making the recommendation being available um getting the drinks to them quickly so all of that to say bar plays a a, a big role in keeping uh, any restaurant profitable. So I want to talk about a lot of things. Um, I want to go back, if I can, and talk about your sort of education. Because when you sort of get into operations, right, you learn how to make a drink. You learn how to set up a bar. You learn how to break down a bar. Then you learn how to maybe take inventory. Maybe eventually you learn how to make a, a drink more consistently. And then at some point you become aware of liquor cost and and what that does to a restaurant's profitability and and the role it can play so talk to me about your education when did you start learning this because there's all the time when we don't know something and then suddenly we do know something so when did you start learning uh, about that side of things it, it was with blt it was when i was you know in that corporate 
you know, for the first time in my life in a major corporate structure. And I didn't know how to do those things, but I would, I, you know, I had Fred Dexheimer telling me certain, you know, letting me know about, you know, the, the recipe, so to speak, or the, the formula is the correct word, the formula for, uh, for costs. And, 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 I, and then I started to look at how to do all of that. And I self-taught myself Excel. No one taught me Excel. I had to teach myself and I didn't have a computer. And so I was doing it at the, we always open BLTs in hotel properties. So I was using the, the offices for the, for whatever hotel in their right. cell. And, and just, you know, at that time it was a, a flash drive, right? It wasn't, there was no, there was no cloud. And so I was having to take these sheets around and I was doing it in these different properties, but I never had a computer. I didn't have a computer until much later where a laptop to work on my own. Uh, but I taught myself Excel and, you know, kept those sheets until, God, I probably used those sheets until I built new ones four years ago. Uh, so I started to learn because I had to, because they're asking me for these things. And I just had to go in and dive in head first. And I always had Fred to look at it for me. And then later on, Naren would help me like kind of figure out the decision making process of you know making a drink and how understanding like you know do you want to keep the whole program at a certain percentage or do you want every drink to be at a certain percentage you know so forth and so on um yep. which which is great for me because one of the things about uh, my education is there are a lot of our people who come from like a family tree of bartenders where this is how you do things i yep. was very fortunate in my career to have people that were teaching me skills so i can identify who i want to be as a bartender as a bar director as a creative and a business person and so i have my own now i feel i have my own style way of doing things it's very malleable it's very nimble but but i have you know, able to formulate what works and systemat systematically for me based off of a really great amount of education from fred and 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 honestly man it's just even managers just rick pritcher at, at at gotham gave me like some really good just jewels and i always ask questions i was never too shy to ask a question if i didn't know i would rather not look stupid and rather just say hey can you teach me yeah so and really what we're talking about is when we're talking about costing out recipes just like you'd cost out a food recipe right you cost out a drink recipe the idea being that it costs the restaurant a certain amount of money to send that glass to send that drink out to a guest we've got to know what it costs us to put all those ingredients into a drink mm -hmm. in order for us to determine how much we're going to charge them for it and a lot of times people sort of build their prices and I, I see this happen all the time especially with independence and it's okay if anybody's listening to this and this is how you do it it's okay you don't know until you know right so it's like once you know better you do better so that's what the the point of this podcast is but like you say, oh, we're going to charge $12 for our, uh, for our drinks because that's what the other places around here charge about $12 for their signature drinks or $14 or whatever that number is. But there's an actual number. There's an actual dollar amount that it costs mm. to send that to the guest. And so you can still charge $12 or $14, whatever you want to charge. But you got to know then how much profit you're making from that. And this is what John was saying. Uh, you know, yeah. do you want every drink? to hit a certain cost, because in which case, your drinks might be 12, 14, 17, 16, 15, because the, num the, the, the quality of ingredients and the amount of ingredients that go into a given drink might be such where they have to be different. 
Um, or if you want to say, hey, all our signature drinks are one price, we want them all at $15, well, then you've got some wiggle room because some drinks can be more profitable, some can be less because you've right. got the others that are sort of making it up. And this goes to the, the heart of what you're speaking about, right? Mm-hmm. Of course, and you can you can do that where you have you have one that hits at nine percent, you have one can, that can hit at twenty four percent. But if if you want a line price at twelve, if they all come out at at the that whatever magic number you want it to be, most places it's somewhere between eighteen and twenty one percent. Then then you can do that, or you can just say, hey, I'm going to be creative and say I want to make the drink, and whatever that drink is in you know, perfect thing to give to a guest that, that is my creative vision now costs that much because of how much it costs. Yep. So, and I think, I think it depends on kind of like your operation. It depends on your bar team. It depends on, you know, compounding amount of fa- factors, your guests, obviously not, none of people understand, I think in the bar world that your guests are going to tell you what you are very quickly. Talk about that a little bit more. I, I want to know, I want to know how you think about that. Your guests that walk into your bar, you can't, you don't get to pick who they are. They get to walk in. And they're going to tell you their needs. They're going to tell you their wants. They're going to tell you the kinds of drinks they want to drink. They're going to tell you by just not in a, in a dialogue, just in how they order. And so you're going to get so much information based off of what your people that are obviously attracted to your space are going to want. So you can cater and create to help build that business based off the people that are already drawn in versus doing something so... Um, incredibly different that you might alienate people or saying, no, this is what we're doing because this is what it is. Um, and, and again, that depends. I, I fully believe that the bar program should be an extension of the kitchen in restaurants. I don't think they should be different. And I don't think, you know, a big pratfall for a lot of that I see for some bar directors is they have the way they make drinks and they just make those drinks in every restaurant and they could have eight restaurants and you could like change the name at the top and put it at another restaurant and it's the same menu. Nothing changes. So you're able to kind of like within the concept, right, develop something that that caters to the building. But then I'm talking the types of drinks that your guests, they, oh, here in this part of town, in this room, they like dark spirited things. So maybe I have a couple more stirred options than normal. Oh, here they like really like refreshing drinks. Okay, we'll do some Louis B. B. V stuff, lots of effervescent drinks, lighter flavors, more delicate flavors. So your guests are going to give you that information and it's your job and responsibility to take that information, listen to it, and help build a program that's going to continually make your bar busy at your restaurant. So talk to me about the, uh, the word I've been thinking about a lot ever since the pandemic is evolution, mm-hmm. is that if there's something that we didn't do as an industry is we, we stopped evolving somewhere. We, we learned the hard way yep. um, that we had stopped evolving. The rest of the world was moving on, and we still did things the way we did things. Um, but I also think about um, th- there's something you said that reminds me a, a lot of what I like to say. Uh, something I say when I go open restaurants, because I've opened, uh, I don't know, nine restaurants over my career. And... I always try to like hold the crowds for as long as possible. Yeah. And I say, right now the restaurant belongs to us. Mm-hmm. But as soon as we open the doors, it no longer belongs to us mm-hmm. because our guests um, exert a sense of ownership over the property, which is exactly what they want. But then we work for them. Mm-hmm. We serve them. They they tell us what they want. And this is sort of what you're saying yeah. here. So talk to me about how a restaurant evolves and how a bar program evolves where you open a restaurant – 
you got one thing in your mind, you think it's going to be one thing, and then you learn because, like you said, you listen, and the, they tell you what they want, and they actually tell you what they are. So talk to me about, can you think of any examples over your career where you've sort of had a pivot? You, you've had to evolve what you thought it was because the the people, the guests were telling you something different. Uh, yeah, right now, actually, uh, the bar at Audrey. So Audrey's, is, it's, it's a restaurant. And then we have a bar on another floor. It, it innately is another concept. It is not the bar for the restaurant. It just happens to be in the same building. And that bar is so wildly different. It, it's 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 produce driven. So you're talking about like the menu is a, a basket of produce. There's no written menu because it changes every day because produce evolves over the course. So we'd make five new drinks every day and the drinks never peak. And there's no stirring or shaking. Everything's built a la minute. Like we will take this rare piece of citrus and gets juiced right then, or we'll take these farm farm carrots and they get grated down right then, and it's fresh and it's different. But people that come up and happen to sit at that bar before um, going down to their going down to Audrey for dinner wanted certain things. And we start to realize as much as we want this to be an original concept and this to be what this is, just these five drinks, the guests that were coming in were telling us it needed to be a little different. And so now we're offering our downstairs a menu from the restaurant, which we will order for them, pick up and bring upstairs, beer, wine. We're making sure that the people that come in feel like they're at home and don't feel like they're being told no. And that was hard because it's a really great concept and it's something that we were hoping people would just like take to. And it wasn't. The people coming into the building told us, no, we need old fashions. We need to, we want to drink that. And so mm-hmm. now we've pivoted to be able to accommodate that. We don't make them up there. We only make the five drinks up there still because it's a very specific like service. But we understood that, that they had, they needed these things and we wanted to get them for them. Which goes back to the spirit of hospitality it's about taking care of people and you know you've created a place where people want to be and so yep. make it so it's a place where they want to be again and come back I, th- I love that it's interesting so there's a chicken or the egg here that happens right right we come mm-hmm. up with a concept we say this is what we want to do let's figure out how to make it profitable or we work backwards we say how do we build something that's innately profitable and let's see you know let's make the numbers work and then how do we what does that look like in its in, in the execution? I can't say that you, maybe you'll tell me differently, but I don't know that you work one way or the other. It's probably both at the same time. But you tell me how you start to approach that and how, how other operators listening to this can start to approach it with, with their bar, bar programs. The first thing I did was, was understand that if you don't profit, there's no bar to work at. And that's something I tell people all the time. It's like, guys, if we don't get people in, there's no bar. You don't have a job. I don't have a job. We've, we've got to make sure that the doors are open for all of us to be able to do all the things we want to do. And and so I, I always am thinking about how to keep that there and finding that balance between the creative and the profitability. For me, it's finding uh, – I, I did this years ago, and I, it's just an innate way I operate now that – What's the fat and can I cut it away? How do I cut it away? Uh, what's extraneous? Are there, what are the wastes? And that's the main thing. It goes in like when, when the sustainability thing was happening for like a PR buzzword in the bar world. I was doing it because it was profitable. 
I wasn't doing it to save the planet, to be completely honest. It was a good side effect, but I did it because it was profitable. I, I stopped using bar napkins because they're two cents a piece, and people would grab a handful of them and throw them away, and there's $3. I stopped using straws because, again, it's two, three cents a piece, and I just see them on the floor and in the trash. I was like, what's the point? And then I started to think about, well, from a creative standpoint, 80% of what you taste is what you smell. If you're using a straw, you're not smelling much, so be gone with that. Um, I stopped getting away from all of these like homemade ingredients and all this kind of stuff because flavors are found in spirits. Spirits are incredibly shelf-stable. So you learn to dash in things. You learn to to minimize the amount of um, things that could potentially go bad or waste. Or So you had more controllables in your program because you know that is not going to spoil. That is a distilled spirit. That is a liqueur that is not going to, you know, that's a note of you, whatever. This wine has, you know, the fortified wine has 30 days in the fridge. I know we're going to sell it. So taking away all the extraneous, like, ginger syrup, raspberry syrup, this, that, and the other that I know has a shelf life and could eventually be money down the drain and compacting that into things I know, like making my controllable expenses controllable. And so I started me as a bar director operating from that point. And then I create concepts of drinks under that formula of cutting the fat. And, and I, just because for years it was, I would just see like, you know, you've been behind a bar, like the basket with like all the stuff just dumped in it. Like the, and we, we probably don't even need at the continental. I don't think we even need, um, you know, those, those waste baskets in, in the, in the ice wells. Because we don't have waste. We just don't. There's no reason for it. We just, there's nothing extraneous. Just If it's not needed, it's not needed. Moving to lemon and orange oils versus twists because you don't waste it. You don't have like them decaying anywhere. You just go, <laughs> it's perfectly fine and it's stable and it gives people aromatic. And it, it looked to be forward thinking. But for me, I'm like, man, I just, I'm sick of the waste. I'm sick of throwing money away. Yeah. So then talk to me about, so obviously you're working at, I don't want to say high concept, but a, but a higher concept uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. concept than a lot of other places. Um, mm -hmm. So let's bring this home, because uh, I know you've done consulting work over the years too. So how do you talk to yeah. yep. the pub, the tavern, the, you know, just the, just yeah. a restaurant, right? And there, there are thousands of them that listen to, you know, people that listen to this and say, oh, I like what you're saying. How do I put that into practice? I like the idea of no waste. I like the idea of not throwing money out. I like the idea of not having juices turn and, and sour. So how do you begin to do that in your bar program and also do the other thing, which is you know serve your audience um, in the way that they want to slash expect to be served? I would say start looking at, you got, the main thing is knowing your back bars. Not enough people know the back bars. They don't know the breadth of spirits available to them. So let's say you want to create a drink with raspberry in it. You could get a bunch of raspberries and cook them, which is labor, money, right? Um, but then you're creating this thing and it's, you know, it's, right? Or you can just get a bottle of raspberry brandy, raspberry eau de vie, which is going to give you every bit of concentration of flavor for raspberry with no labor and it's completely shelf-stable. So you need to start like really research, take some time and say, I want these flavors. And then where can I get them? How can I get like, I want coconut in a drink right now. So, you know, we make a, 
coconut soda, but it's just, you know, we make a coconut syrup, we add water, and we put it in a soda siphon. We use it at the end of the night, and it's on our NA menu as well, but that's about as kitschy as it gets. Everything else is so pared down. And I also really lean on batching of, of things, and I think we'll get to that much later into to sort of the operational, like, during shift stuff, but... I would tell them to, to know the back bar, to, at the beginning, juice to order. It really doesn't take that long if you've, you know, if you, you're only doing 30 or 40 people a night, juice to order. Just get a little hand juicer and juice to order one lime or half lime, half lemon. Find out what works for you because all of those things are going to matter at the, end of the, at the end of the month. There's no reason to prep a bunch of stuff and have all these things there that could potentially go bad. So know, knowing what's available and finding different places to get the flavors you want is going to be 90% of the battle for you to create what you want for your guests. Because the thing I learned a while ago is your guests only care about one thing. They care about liquid in the glass. They don't really care how you make it anymore. They don't really care the name of the brand that's in it for the most part when you're talking about a, a house cocktail. They care about the liquid in the glass. And if you take it to that point, you get that simply a wow. It's just about that. Give them something good. That's the whole fight. And and I would just go back to say again, like just finding ways to, to do that with, without adding labor of ingredient when there's so many new spirits out that are going to give you those things. Yeah, I like that. I, I think being more um, more thoughtful in, in what you put on your back bar. Mm-hmm. And how do you how you utilize them that they're not just sitting there? Yeah. Talk to me about on the other side though these places that do 100, 200, 300 plus covers a night, mm-hmm. and they're doing a lot of you know vodka and cranberry. They're doing a lot of like that stuff. How do you yeah. how do you apply some of these concepts that you're talking about to to some of those bars? Right. Well, if you're doing 200 a night, even I mean that goes into the batching thing for house drinks. So, you know, time is money, and so I, I take all the spirits. And they all get in a batch bottle. So most of my drinks are two pick, two two part pickups. It's the acid, and then the sweetener is even in into in the batch as well. So it's acid and then the batch. So it's consistent. It's never going to go bad in that batch bottle, um, and it's fast for people. You can do you know weigh out by gram if you want. You can do ounces, however you want to do it for exact measurement. But you always know your guests are getting exactly what they ask for fast and while doing that your team has more time to make sure the drink is properly diluted garnished appropriately and tastes good than picking up 12 bottles um you know the beauty of having volume is that you know there's going to be less waste you you know that you're going to go through a lot of stuff you can look at the cover count and say oh wow we're probably going to hammer this out but it's also looking at your percentages right you're knowing friday saturday we sell 10%, 15% more cocktails on a weekend than we do on a weekday. So you take that, okay, so we need to do 15, 15, 20% more prep on Friday and Saturday. So it's understanding that as well. Is this something, yeah, and I'm sorry to interrupt you. Is this something as simple as you look at your your Mm -hmm. P-mix on like an average Friday, Saturday night, and Friday morning you're saying, hey, what are our 10 biggest cocktails, Right. right? So you're saying, hey, we do this many Cosmos, we do this many, yep. you know what I mean? And you're just batching those big ones mm-hmm. out? Oh, no, I batch everything. If it's on a house, if it's a house drink, like on our menu, they're all batched. Every one of them. 
because it's just smart. In fact, we have four martinis, a Rob Roy, and a Manhattan that are pre-diluted and kept in a freezer. So we literally just pick the bottle up, pour it in a glass. It's perfectly cold. It's perfectly balanced. It's perfectly diluted, and it goes out. We can get a we can get a tray of four martinis, house martinis, to a table in a minute and a half. Pop Menu has reimagined the restaurant. They are breaking the mold of the menu, taking the kitchen doors off the hinges, and serving up their most comprehensive technology solution yet. It's called Pop Menu Max. It comes with all the previous ingredients that you've heard me mention on this podcast, right? We've been talking about it for months. Websites designed with SEO, marketing tools that help keep you top of mind with guests, and of course, their patented interactive menu technology. But now, this new recipe brings automated phone answering to the table, brings third-party online order aggregation, waitlisting, all of that and more. For example, PopMenu's phone answering technology has your ringing phones covered. With artificial intelligence, right, AI, the simple questions that keep your phone line tied up can now be handled by a computer without pulling a staff member away from your in-person hospitality. So no more missed calls, no more missed reservations, no more people bothering you to ask about your hours or, or anything, no more missed revenue. The computer's going to handle all that, and that is just the beginning. You have a passion for food. Pop Menu has a passion for technology. Together, it is a recipe for restaurant success. Now even more digital ingredients are in their technology pantry, if you will, and Pop Menu is helping restaurants attract, engage, remarket and transact with their guests on a whole new level. Trust me, if you're a restaurant owner, you need Pop Menu to take your business to the next level. For a limited time only, get $100 off your first month, plus you get to lock in one unchanging monthly rate. Go to popmenu.com slash restaurant strategy to claim the offer. Again, that's $100 off your first month at P-O-P menu.com slash restaurant strategy. As always, that link is in the show notes. Yeah, so then this is the next thing I wanted to talk to you about because the thing yeah. that drives me crazy. So here in restaurants, I'm always talking like the sooner we can get somebody a drink, the sooner they can consume that drink and the sooner they'll be ready for another drink. This goes back to that second beverage sales, right? Right. And we all know that, um, that cocktails are a great way to start the meal before you have uh, your wine or whatever else you're going to have. It's a great right. way to start the meal. And what always drives me crazy, especially now over the last, let's say, 15 years with this cocktail craze, is that there are all these high-touch 14 things going to the glass, and it takes me forever. Me, the consumer, it takes me forever to get it. Mm-hmm. And um, and as a as a on the business side, it takes me forever to get drinks to somebody Ooh. that. If I can just get it to them sooner, they'll drink it sooner and they'll be ready for something else sooner. Yeah. So this is partially solving that. Talk to me a little yeah. bit more about that. Yeah, so we did it because I went back to that thing. Like the guests only care about what's in the class. So they don't care about the show. Like Now, that, this is restaurants. If you're going into a cocktail bar, very different because you're there for that. But you're talking about – we're talking about restaurants. And I've always thrived and I feel at home at restaurant bars. But the point is to get somebody something cold, delicious, and quick. And so why look at all of that and say, why am I going to have somebody do 14 touches or eight touches? None of my drinks are ever that much anyway. But I was like, again, I I just three touches, get it out fast and let them go. And especially, you know, specifically the the martini program at the Continental being in freezers, that room makes you want to drink martinis, oyster, caviar, you know. And I said, 
you remember from New York. You want to get you want to get a table, a group of martinis, a round of martinis on a table before they order their first glass of wine, and that's the key to just getting it in. So I said, how do I do that? And then I started to notice they're doing a lot of this in, in Europe. And so I started to research it, and I asked my some of my European bar friends about it, and they said, "Oh yeah, this is this is just what we're doing." And so I said, "Man, I can get the coldest martini everyone's ever gotten in their life to them in a minute. Why in the world wouldn't I do that?" And I know it's perfectly diluted, and I know that it's you know what I mean, like, and and it's just become this thing. I call it freezer mingling. I think I. I can coin that term. Other people just call it batch in a freezer. I'm going to be fancy, but so it allows us that that freedom. It allows us to, you know, let somebody go to the table. Anybody care for a round of martinis before we start? Absolutely, we, we do recommend our house martinis, so forth and so on. They ring it in. By the time they walked around to the service bar, it's already there. They take it away. And that's it. Yeah. And you've got you're talking about somebody hasn't even looked over the tasting menu yet, and they've got a cold martini in front of them. And so I just and that that permeates through the entire program. Like every drink that's a house drink is batched for that reason because I want people to get drinks fast. I'd rather them get a second drink than diatribe and talk about the first drink. And that that goes into the way <laughs> I make drinks. I make drinks light, refreshing, easy to drink. Even stirred ones are are softer because I don't polarizing flavors are great and people are going to talk about the new ones that's awesome that's great that's for death and company i want to put more drinks <laughs> on the table you know what i mean like because i'm a restaurant bar and we, our costs are much different so um so yeah to me it's about cold cold delicious and fast and, and there's a lot of people doing keg drinks which is really great if you've got that ability to to have um draft drinks like to be able to turn around and pull, like just grab a spigot and there's a margarita do that if you can do it appropriately do it well and, and do it safely for for food standards there's no reason not to bottled cocktails another really great thing labor up front but yeah but you got to think it's i think this is the way i think about it this is definitely the way i think about it it's more labor intensive prep for fast execution because that fast execution is more sales which is going to make that labor worth it what's funny when we start talking about bottled drinks i start going number one it's great for to-go food Right. If we can if we can order to go, they pick up and they get drinks. Right. It's doubling the check, um, you know, doubling what they would already do. But number two, this is where I start getting into it. Right? Something we don't talk about enough is the customer journey where, you know, I, I love this. I was at a at a restaurant and when they uh, when they drop the check it's a casual place, they always do like breakfast, uh, like breakfast wraps. Yeah to go and they'll always say do you want a round of breakfast wraps for the morning we do this famous blah blah it's on this sourdough you just throw it and it was like like that was that was their last touch like one more try and they were like eleven dollars a piece and eleven times four they've just added 44 bucks they've added a couple more drinks to the tab basically and the idea of you know bottled cocktails to say hey i know you loved x y and z cocktail do you know we bottle those can i uh can i put a couple of those on your check and at 15 times four, you're putting 60 bucks on the end. And from the marketing perspective, well, number one, you're driving more revenue, yeah. finding a way to you know increase the basket size, mm -hmm. if you want to think of it in retail terms. Yeah. But then number two, you're extending the hospitality beyond the four walls. You're now part of the rest of their weekend. Mm -hmm. You're now part of their life the next night or 
a week later when they have people over and they're like, oh, we got these bottled cocktails, let's make this. And the other couple says, oh, what is this? This is really great. And say, oh, we were actually at the Continental. And they exactly. did, like you've injected, I always say, you've injected yourself into a conversation that you have no right being in. Which again is the the whole key. We know word of mouth is the key to to the success of any restaurant. It's been that way yeah. for five thousand years. Yeah. We just have to find new ways to inject ourselves in. So I, I love. I mean, number one from the craft of it, yeah. that we can make better cocktails, more consistent, more reliable. But we're also driving more revenue. We're also injecting ourselves into conversations, extending the hospitality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. This goes to the next thing I really want to talk about, which is that. You know, fighting groupthink and challenging the way we do things, and and mm -hmm. bars are certainly in all of restaurants we're guilty of this, and I think the bars are really guilty of this, right? Because this is mm -hmm. the way we do it, because that's the way it's always been done, and you're already starting to to rethink a lot of those things, which I appreciate. It's one of the reasons why we're having this conversation. <laughs> Talk to me about what else. What else are the bad habits? What else are the bad things that we need to get rid of uh, to make better bar programs, to make more profitable um, experiences? The, I, the stigma that the thing that the, you know, like a vodka soda is not a cocktail. That When I started with, with my teams, I said, guys, if we're going to make a vodka soda, we're going to make the coldest, fastest vodka soda in the world, and they're going to enjoy it, and then they're going to come back for another one. And that's the point. It's about losing that pretension. You know, yes, you can want, and yes, I try to create world-class bar programs. But a part of that is taking every single thing a guest wants and doing it for them optimally, giving them that experience. So not shying away from those stigmas, from, from saying, those that's not right. Oh, no, don't turn your nose up at someone because they want a vodka soda that guy's about to put 14 bucks on a check 17 if it's some crazy expensive vodka and you spent 30 seconds of your time like what's wrong with you don't that's not how we think we think <laughs> oh this is what you want yeah <laughs> you know like and so trying to get rid of that like pretension in bars but conversely within the industry there's a lot of pushback on people who are trying to do the you know here in america at least not in europe but here in america like if somebody's trying to open a world-class bar there's a lot of like look at him trying so hard i was like isn't that the point like aren't i doing this to to serve people and to give them something but also being able to say i'm going to give them something but even if it is a a, a vodka soda System and I use that as an example because at every bar, you know, you've worked in the bar. Oh, I just want vodka soda. I was like, you know, like I just want vodka soda. I was like, cool, let's go. <laughs> and you yeah. know, there's ways to present that, like using, you know, when they see you're making a vodka soda for them and they see you like actually making, we make all of our highballs with the same care that the Japanese make a Japanese highball. So like the the ice, it's a it's a process. It it takes a lot less time than another drink, but it's still a process. I'm like, wow, they actually give. They actually care about my drink. They didn't just throw a gun and some things. And then you, you've got somebody who then, now you've got trust, and then maybe you can talk them into other items and other things. But I, I just hate that stigma. Um, but I also hate that, that like, the bartender doesn't take care of his space. Like, even if you're in a dive bar, your dive bar should still be clean. It should be efficient. You know, you should be able to prep every day like you're going to be busy in terms of, like, making sure that you've got all your stuff there. You're ready to go. So if somebody comes in, they're going to get the best experience possible from the first moment. There's a lot of that, like, eh, it's Monday. It's like, but that's 
but everybody who walks in on a Monday could also walk in on a Friday, Saturday with a group of six. So you got to take care of everybody. And I just think some of those stigmas um, are, are things that I, I just I can't deal with. Like messy, just all, oh, sorry. Sticky bar tops. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just, you know, care. Just care. There's There's not a lot of other, like, really bad sort of things in, in restaurant bars you know cocktail bars is a whole other scenario where you know they, they're like oh this is what we do i was like that's great that's not at all what i would like to drink you know yeah. i go into a bar where <laughs> you know i i don't like amaro and cocktails and i think because i'm a bar person everyone thinks they want to give me some amaro cocktail um and i literally will say hey you know whatever you're excited about something light easy to drink low abv and they give me some like amaro based cocktail i said guys i said light i said easy to drink I yeah said, yeah you know um but yeah it, it's there's there's not it's, it's that i think covid changed a lot in bars i think people had the option of choice so much from how they spent their time to all those things during covid that now when they go in somewhere, they, they still have that expectation because for a couple of years, they just, the world was their oyster in terms of their time. So if they're choosing to spend time with you, they're also more open to, or, or more apt, rather, saying exactly what they want because they've had time to think about it. And they know, hey, this is my time. This is what I want. So that flexibility need, needs to be there. And if somebody can't give that to them, you're still in the hospitality industry, you know. Um, it's so, not like no offense you're not a tasting menu where you only serve yeah, these, yeah, yeah. these 12 things yeah no this is great and you opened the door to the pandemic so I, I do want to talk about the pandemic um, yeah because I have my feelings about it. I'm really curious to know your feelings about it. And obviously, my experience here in New York was one thing. And even though I live in yeah. New York now, uh, 95% of my clients are now all over the country. So right. I do feel like I got a, a pretty good view. Mm -hmm. um, people are always quick to say, well, you live in New York. I'm like, yeah, yeah, but all the businesses I work with are not here in New York. So, right. But I want to know, I want to go macro a mm -hmm. little bit. Because you were just talking a little bit about the, the things that have changed. So talk to me about now quote-unquote, post-pandemic, post-COVID, what's changing on the restaurant side, what's not changing, what's changing on the guest side, and what and what hasn't changed? Talk to me a little bit about that. The biggest thing I've seen from the bar side is, is uh, our employees. Our employees didn't have work for, for years. They were living on, you know, pretty nice government amount of money. And so they, they, they developed this sort of freedom about themselves and so they come back into the workforce and now they're used to being able to do whatever they want so they they have these expectations that were not there which which is not bad i'm saying it's not bad i'm saying we're going to all have to pivot but they want to make a certain amount of money and they want to be able to ask off and take as much time as they want and that's just that's great and i think that that's where our industry needs to go. It needs to be a more standardized way of saying you're not going to work yourself to the bone. You need to have time for yourself, mm -hmm. which is a big, big, big pillar of what we do in our company is making sure people are taken care of. Like we don't schedule anyone over 40 hours. We do not do it. It's just not something we do. Um, yep. So being able to pivot there and understand that 
if someone says, uh, I asked, you know, I'm not on the schedule, I'm not coming in, that that's not a fireable offense and you can't be mad at them. They weren't scheduled. And no other profession in the world is that expected. So all of those historical data of this is the way it's always been, is you got to yep. throw that out the window. It's a new world. And that for better, for worse, it is, you know, that you'll hear, oh, they don't want to work. No, they do want to work. They just want to work more fluidly. And and I think that adaptation needs to happen. On the other side with, with our guests, I'm seeing at the bar guests that are more specific, um, more demanding in a way, because now that they're out and they're spending money, they're like, this is what I want. Yep. Um, but also people that are a little more adventurous. I think they just kind of got cooped up for so long. Now they're just willing to just say, hey, let's try stuff. And so I would never have guessed that a restaurant in Nashville, Tennessee would sell as much caviar as we do. I'm just, no matter what, so much caviar. But we also have, yeah. a, a, bar, we have a bar experience, Vesper Club, that is five tasting-sized martinis with caviar pairings. And the fervor for that is incredible. And I would have never guessed it. I thought we'd get a couple people, but it's just. Yeah, that's cool. You never knew. You, you never, I didn't know that. And I think it's like, I, I said this probably six months ago. I was like, guys, we're going to do the Roaring Twenties again. Yeah. After Prohibition. Now, granted, that was a lot longer than the pandemic. But I feel like in modern society with information and social media, everything, everything is just like hyper extended. So, you know, they just got told they have to stay home, got to stay home. They got to stay home. It wasn't like. Oh, you can't drink. And then that's just what it was. And then, oh, now you can drink. Okay, cool. There was every day an update about why you could leave. So I think everything felt longer. And so people lashed out. And now they're just, people are just out. And it's it's going to be great for our bars, but people have to be prepared for that. The, the guests are more, from what I'm seeing, more demanding, more specific about what they want, which means we need to be more nimble. Yeah. I think you brought up a really good word, which is expectations. And I find myself talking about this a lot. Yeah. Um, we're talking about heightened expectations, right? That yeah, and I and I think that's a good thing. I, I it drives me crazy when, when you know when uh, when I hear operators complain about oh the people are so demanding and all this and we're understaffed. I wish they would just understand. I said yeah, but you got to understand that they're still you're not giving them a discount. You're not giving them a twenty yeah. percent discount and say hey we're giving you twenty percent off because we're not giving the level of service. So you know thank you for understanding. This is what right. we can do for you. We're not doing that. In fact. We're charging them way more than they were spending this time mm -hmm. in 2019 or 2020 because of inflation. Yeah. That's nobody's fault. Right. It's maybe somebody's fault, but we're not going to get into that here. <laughs> it's, it's not the guest's fault. It's not the business's fault. Mm -hmm. But acknowledging that there are heightened expectations because we waited a long time to come back, and now it's more expensive than ever. And, yeah, as a consumer, as a guest – no, I, I don't appreciate that I have to wait longer, that I deal with somebody who's not well-trained, that I, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Those are realities, but the other side is also a reality, right? They're like, that's a fact. We're understaffed. We, we It's hard to find good people and to keep good people. But also, on the other hand, the people are still spending money, and in many time, in many mm -hmm. cases, more money for the same sort of product or a substandard product than they were used to paying. And so, like, yeah. whose problem is that? You've got to be on it. <laughs> everybody's if you think about the inflation thing it just happened because with inflation normally in restaurants it's just it's a gradual burn for you like you go to the same restaurant over like five five years you don't really notice the prices but because you couldn't go out for that period of time and the inflation still happened it was like sticker shock for 
everyone when you step yeah. back into a restaurant. And the restaurants might not being evil and not being greedy. There's just this is what it costs to do business if, if you're doing your you know you're doing your business appropriately. So like for a lot of people that was a sticker shock. But when they're like, yeah, I'm going to pay this money, but I expect for it to be this value because in their mind, it's the value of had they gone out to an extra special dinner before the pandemic because they don't have that period of time of like getting used to the price it just kind of happened and then from the spirits perspective it's hard to get stuff right now like scotch whiskey skyrocketed because you just can't get it into the states and if you're using any level of of product from overseas glass shipping all those things they're more expensive so guess what your drinks are more expensive and so now you're like how do i how do i do this so I plan and with my menus, I have drinks that very large range of pricing to make people comfortable, right? They, they can also pick their spirit and how they want to experience, but they also have, can see what's within their final um, financial you know, range so they don't feel alienated. So tell me if I'm uh, agree or disagree. Mm -hmm. uh, this is not my opinion necessarily. <laughs> okay. um, this is uh, something I've read. Um, and I want you to weigh in. Um, dining out is going to become more expensive and meaningfully more expensive. And because of that, we're going to see the death of another 30% of the restaurants out there. Yeah. And it's going to be the good, it's going to be the, it's going to be the ones that are going for next level experiences. You're going to see, I foresee that bars and restaurants are going to, you're going to see a much more casual style of bar and restaurant survive. I don't feel the high-end ex experiences are going to be the ones that make it through it. Hmm. I just don't. I don't because that's a you know there's something about the opportunity of choice for casual a la carte meals versus hey you're going to sit down and get this incredible experience but you just get to sit down and have it. Um, people have been told for so long what they have to do and so i you know plus i think people will say hey i mean that food was great but was it better than just this specific kind of meal so i think yes that's going to happen but it, it's going to be that top tier of thing that not all of them make it so it's funny because the article i was reading um sort of said the high and the low are going to survive but everything in the middle is going to have a is going to have a a, a a reckoning. I can't. I can't. If if price if inflation continues, I can't see how that makes sense, because the amount of money it costs to execute those high level things, the amount of kitchen labor that it costs to to make that profitable is unbelievable. And if you're talking about like, you know what, the median house price in this country is half a million dollars now. And you're telling me that yeah. you're telling me that you're going to be able to still pay a guy in the kitchen twelve bucks an hour. Absolutely not. You're going to pay them twenty twenty five in these restaurants, and the army of people, production people, and all of that that it takes to execute that is yep. so high that you're talking. You no, know, I think it's a. I think it's a really valid perspective. I I don't. I don't, I don't disagree person? with what you're saying. You know, like what? what yeah. Where are you going to be able to charge five hundred bucks a person for a rest for a meal? Not in New York City. It's and here's the interesting thing, right? And you brought up Europe earlier. Um, 
you know, I went with my family to Paris for the first time a couple of years ago, right before the pandemic, and I was blown away by how expensive the top tier restaurants are. Mm-hmm. I came back to the States going like, oh my God, I'm going to do a three star restaurant every month because they are so cheap. I mean, because over there, over there, it's like, it's like, it's like another level, you know, where entrees yeah. are, you know, your appetizer is 75 euro. Your entree mm-hmm. is 182 euro, like at a yeah. three-star restaurant. Like if you're ordering a la carte, it, I mean, it's like it's ludicrous. There, I mean, the you know the tasting menus were all because they don't run on tips, right? Of course, they don't run on tips. Of course, but it's it's you know that it's, <laughs> it's like, that expensive. Yeah. And uh, so listen, we didn't do any three stars. We did a couple of one stars, and it was still really expensive. And I just thought, yeah. man, what a deal that we've got all these great one and two star restaurants, even three star restaurants here in the states. And they're uh, listen, they're expensive. I I I get that, but um, certainly much more accessible. And so the interesting thing mm-hmm. about the European model is that those are still surviving and and thriving and there's a case to be made for the fact that that upper echelon of people are always going to have discretionary income and they don't mind if it's now four hundred dollars instead of three hundred or five hundred instead of three hundred i guess time will tell i think the 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 point to this i guess that i wanted to come back around to is that i think we have to justify price with more specificity and be more deliberate about how we do that mm-hmm. at every level of at every level of dining, right? Yeah. Like, like why we have to convince people to come out and join us. We have to convince people to part with their money. Um, and I think the the question they all ask, whether they you know whether it's implied or explicitly, why why should I come to you rather than the other place? Mm-hmm. The, the other place is actually closer. The other place is a little cheaper. The other place I already know. Why should I come to your place? How do you, th- I mean, you're now, you have the opportunity now mm-hmm. where you've been opening restaurants for the last year. Talk to me about how you think about that. Chet says it best. We'll, we'll be we'll be in a meeting and we're talking about menu pricing and we're talking about cover counts. And we're talking about, you know, uh, dishes and all these things. And then Chef just says, guys, we just got to take care of the people. We just got to take care of guests. We got to, we got to make them when they come in here have an experience of like man that and so the next time they want to do it now maybe they don't want to sit in the dining room and do the prefix of the tasting menu maybe they just want to come to the bar and have a la carte food and but but they have such a reaction to the experience that they had that they have to come back and do it again in some other form and so it just goes back to to that idea is like you take care of people Right, like in New York City, you know, at BLT, we, I remember we had this one gentleman who would come in four times a week. Guy had a black card. He could go anywhere he wanted, but he came to us four days a week because he felt at home there. He liked the food. He liked the people. And it's about that. It's about getting people that just you give them something, the thing they're looking for, that makes them want to drive that far, and makes them want to say, "Hey, I could go to that place, and it's great." But I had such an experience at this place, and I feel connected to this place because of the way they treated me that I want to go back. So talk to me about how you guys are doing that now. I always joke around, say, culture isn't created at the pre-shift meeting, right? We all sit around and say, hey, guys, I just need more teamwork. I want to see more teamwork out there. And then, okay. And then there's still no teamwork because we've done nothing except talk about teamwork without instilling it. So talk to me about this whole hospitality we just have to take care of people what are the specific things that you put into play 
to empower your people to do that? And and what are the things that are on display that show people that this is a little bit different here, that it matters, that you guys go above and beyond? What have you What have you done? What are you doing in your places? We well, we we try to build with our team first. We take care of our people because if our people are taken care of and they're happy, then they're going to take care of other people. And this is a this is the impetus for Chef's entire thought process with this company. So every, we have we have benefits, seventy five percent company paid benefits for everyone after thirty days. We have a mindfulness room. Uh, at Audrey, where you can go, there's times you can sign up for massages, acupuncture, Reiki. Uh, you can just go in and meditate. Uh, staff meal is not a throwaway. It is a prepared meal that we all sit down together and eat. Um, we pay proper wages. Our teams don't, you know, the kitchen's getting properly weighed. My bartenders make $8 an hour, a proper wage. Um, at Audrey, we do a full tip pool where even the kitchen is in it. So everyone is, you know, you don't have that wage disparity. So people are getting taken care of. And because we're taking care of them, they want to, they come into work and like, hey, my company cares about me. My people care about me. I'm being taken care of. If I get sick, I can ask off. If, you know, we don't make people feel bad if something happens and they can't come in. We're like, hey, you take your time, whatever you need. We say, don't come to work. If you're sick, because you should be at home focusing on getting better. And that's even for leadership. Chef Brock, I was feeling bad. And I was like, well, I don't feel the best chef, but I'll be there. He goes, no, stay home, turn off your phone and get better. And that's just the thought process is that to take care of our people. And then our people are going to take care of everyone that walks in because they're already, they have that feeling about them. And we give them the tools they need in terms of information and appropriate amount of time. They, you know, if they need something from us, they say, oh, we're short this glass it's not a oh let me ask 12 people it's hey we're short on this glass glasses are there the next day so they have the tools they need to succeed and when they're being taken care of in that manner it just it makes all the difference in the world it's a it's a rare thing and i i we could do a whole other hour just talking about that and sort of <laughs> yeah. you know again like you said expectations yeah. right well like what do people you know we're so surprised as an industry that everyone left and didn't come back it's like uh, we don't pay very well. No. It's long, hard work. They work w- weekends, nights, holidays. We don't really do benefits. PTO is, you know, suspect. Like, need I go on? <laughs> we actually get, oh, yeah, and we get PTO. Everyone gets 10 days PTO. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, it's amazing. But it's like when you start lining them up, you're yeah. like, here are all the reasons why they might not be coming back. So let's address all of those. Um, I love it. I love it. It's really great. Um, I want to talk for just a couple of quick minutes. Um, we'll say rapid fire this. Okay. Uh, where should people's bar programs be? How do we get it right on paper? How do we get it mm-hmm. to be, look right, uh, profitable on paper? What are the safeguards um, that you like to put into place? Um, you know, this is straight advice that you can give the mm-hmm. listeners here uh, to help make sure uh, that they're hitting those things. I know we've talked about a couple of things sort of peppered in, so mm-hmm. maybe we'll you know just highlight them here, or maybe there are other things. But talk to me a little bit about how we use the bar program um, to just uh, increase the profitability of the concept. Make sure that it matches the food. First and foremost, make sure that your drinks match the food. Use batching and other ways to make drinks come out faster and more efficiently. Use products you know you can... Here's a a whole other conversation. Use products uh, that you can get case deals on. Because if it's going to be one of your fast-moving things, you want to put more of that product in, though I understand. Don't get put up in the trap of a 10-case deal because money on the shelf is not money in the bank. 
it's very important to people, especially if you're running a like a really low overhead or you know really tight. Money on the shelf is not money in the bank. So just because a bottle is four dollars cheaper on a ten case deal, yes, over time that will help you. But in but if you're running that tight, that's too much money that's just sitting in a in a on a shelf in, in a closet, right? Um, and on paper, find that percentage and stick to it. I always start with simple classics and just spin them. Just little bitty changes to classic cocktails because classic cocktails traditionally are going to be less expensive than your tin touch things. Then, once you've got the information from your team from from your guests, then you can start maybe adding some things and making some more things. But I would put bar programs out in phases. Don't feel like you have to throw everything in at once because that's a big financial commitment in terms of product, uh, glassware, execution, all of that. Don't do that. Start small, get an identity, and then add on to the program and phases, which is going to allow you to, to spread out that initial investment over the course of time versus just like everything at once. Um, and ask for help. Ask for help. There are seminars all over the all over the country right now. Um, and then the, another thing I'm going to add, which could be another one, please talk to your suppliers about support. Bacardi Company, Campari, Diageo, Pernod Ricard, uh, Brown Foreman, they have budgets that have that that are meant to support bars and restaurants in terms of glassware. If you want to do a, a keg cocktail, they sometimes can help support that. Reach out to those people. Say, hey, this is our top selling drink. I use this product. I'm doing this much product. Is there any support that will help me yeah. make this more profitable for my guests. And that's that's something I learned from from the from doing the supplier side is there's a there, that money is there for the taking. You just got to ask for it. So yeah, talk to me about that because operators have more leverage than I think they ever realize. And especially when we talk about like house cocktails, signature cocktails, right? You're putting a vodka cocktail. Mm -hmm. It really doesn't matter at least in my opinion, doesn't matter what vodka you're putting in there. No. So I always say, you know, auction off that slot to the lowest bidder. You know, who can give you the best quality product mm -hmm. at the most affordable price? You're going to move a ton of product for them. That's how you're going to build a relationship because they're going to say, yep, yeah, we all know the six biggies, but I want to introduce you to uh, another one that we're hoping is going to be one of the big six. It's now in our portfolio, and I think your guests are really going to love it, mm -hmm. and I can give you a great price for that because – the uh, the distributors trying right. to build a, a relationship with that distillery and et cetera, and all right. you know one hand washes the other. That there are there's no reason to put a Grey Goose, a Tito's, a Kettle One in a drink if you're not going to get um, preferred pricing on that. That you can you can right. walk around and talk to a bunch of people. Talk to me a little bit about that and the, and the relationships that you build with um, with your partners. <laughs> So the, the big six are the ones that obviously have the biggest budgets, but these these smaller brands that are trying to trying to break in, are, they also have a, a large amount of money that they can they can utilize. And guys, I'm not talking about pay for play. That that's a whole other scenario. Like people walk around and say, "Oh, I'll just come and pay you money." No, like use them for more sustainable things. So, uh, hey, I want to do this drink. It needs to be on a leather coaster. Could you maybe buy the leather coasters? Something that simple. And that to them, they're like, oh, yeah, that's perfectly legal, in fact, by the way. That is perfectly legal. Them coming in and running their car for $500 is not. But finding ways that, that you can – things you need that are going to help you run your business better over time are asks you can do for them. So for me, I look at things I need and go, oh, okay, I need, I need these little gold trays. 
a bulk of this menu, so and so. Okay, hey, um, I'm using your product. We're going to use a lot of your product, but I need some help. Is there any way you could help me with with the purchase of these? And they're usually like, yeah, that's easy. That's an easy sell. Um, yep. It, you know what I mean? And, and the supplier versus distributor thing is very, very different. Like your distributors are the ones you can talk case pricing with and all of that to get down to the, the most appropriate uh, spirit for the price of the drink. Your suppliers, the brands themselves, are the ones that are going to come in and be able to help with some of those other purchases and support. So if you use both of them, you should be able to get, in essence, drinks way down in product. I mean, I've asked for keg systems i've asked for carbonating systems um i've asked for yeah. metal straws so i don't have to buy straws and got them you know i've all of these kinds of things from people a dehydrator so we don't have to have fresh garnish we can dehydrate and do the fruit thing ask for a dehydrator and got it like dude, there's so many things that they can do for you that are nothing to them that are like, oh, yeah, I've got budget for that, but can help you so much. So just don't be afraid to ask. Yeah. Don't be afraid to ask. It's If you want to throw an event, if you want to throw an event, get a sponsor or a partner and know they're not going to drop off free product. That's not the point. But maybe you want to have a band or uh, a photo booth or something like that. They can take care of that as your partner in that event, and that is an added bonus to the event for your guests. Now you're talking into marketing, but you didn't pay for that. It's just, there's so many ways to work mm-hmm. that relationship. As I mean, I remember once I rented from Diage, I rented a, a bunch of carnival equipment for somebody's anniversary party because they wanted to do like a Coney Island party. And so I rented a bunch of perfectly legal by the way because it was my event but i just rented a a cotton candy machine a popcorn machine a junk like it was crazy and it was a great event and people still talk about that event and that bar is like man i remember that third anniversary party dude that thing was crazy and so it's continually bringing people back to that bar because of that one event and it gets people in the space if you're doing something like that that's going to be really really next level it's getting people into that space yeah so much of what we do, right? This is a relationship business. We build relationships with our staff. Mm-hmm. With them, we build relationships with our guests. We are building relationships with our suppliers, distributors, purveyors, partners. They are the ones who provide us with the stuff that we get to, you know, spin into gold mm-hmm. to sell. And, you know, that therefore helps us, you know, create a relationship with the community at large, whether that's your block, your neighborhood, your city, your region, whatever. Like, it goes on and on and on. And mm-hmm. know that it's it works both ways. And it doesn't um, – and, and relationships work best when they work both ways, right? we right. got to ask staff to do some – do stuff for us, and then we say, hey, what can we do for you, right? Exactly. Okay, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. What do you need from me in order to help you execute that? And the same thing is true here. We buy thousands of dollars of product every month from places, and at a certain point, it's okay to turn around and say, hey, mm-hmm. this is what I want to do, and uh, just, you know, to help me do the next level. Understand that you have leverage, and yeah. um, more than you and know. Doesn't, doesn't hurt to ask. Yeah, more, more than you know. Um, listen, I've loved this time. I, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Uh, I want to finish here. Um, I want you to talk a little bit about the Continental Audrey and the new place you're getting ready to open. Uh, talk to me about what these places are, what they're all about, uh, what you guys are doing. And, of course, we'll include all the links so people can learn more on their own. But tell me what you're doing down there with Chef Sean Brock. Uh, so, yeah, the Continental is Chef's Ode to Continental Dining and the 
approach for the the restaurant menu is you know nouveau dishes so taking old well-known dishes and creating a fresh spin on them so i from the bar perspective i did that same thing so all of our drinks are named after classic drinks because at their ethos they are one of a classic cocktail but doing a new completely different re reimagined version of that drink so it matches the food but it's its own thing it's it's 1920s grandiose dining it's prime rib carts it's martini service it's oysters you know um beautiful room but it's all very modernized in terms of just execution and it's fun it's not stuffy we don't want to be stuffy there's no jazz playing i mean you can get some like led zeppelin on the playlist it's it's fun it's a really good time <laughs> attached to that's the vesper club vesper club is the martini and caviar focus bar with a five course tasting menu that's five tasting size martinis with caviar so i took um a taste of the caviar and then i created the flavors of the martini around the flavors of the caviar and then after that tasted the caviar again and created sort of felt what that texture was and that's how the method i used to make the martini so if it's a if it's a very hard like poppy caviar if it's got a lot of briskness and it's it's a little more firm uh then something like freezer mingling which is a richer style or uh if it's really rich and just unctuous and, and soft then throwing the drink to get some aeration in it so forth and so on but we have that experience and that's all in the same building and then you go to audrey downstairs is audrey it's uh five five course prefix menu with a cocktail window and those drinks are all produce driven or product driven drinks they're named after that so it'd be dandelion kudzu pecan um really simplifying so people understand what they're going to have they're very rustic drinks there's no garnishing there's no extraneous anything there because that's not the space the space is simple it's low country second floor is the bar at audrey the bar at audrey's the the produce driven bar um five drinks a night changes every single day drinks never repeat there's no stirring or shaking um it's a very a la minute situation and it, it's it's zen it's crazy i've never been in a bar where i felt at ease and more relaxed than when i walked in and that's how you feel there and then june which we will be opening in the summer is the 32 seat uh experiential restaurant on the second floor we're not going to call it a tasting menu because that's not appropriate it's not a traditional tasting menu the meal comes in acts so there'll be like certain i guess flows of food so you'll have like a plated dish and then there's these little oshinogi which is japanese but it's a bite that ties you over between the next bite so there'll be a consistent flow of food throughout the entire act for the cocktail portion of that i'm actually in a white jacket in the kitchen and um there's no stirring or shaking either because i didn't want the sound that ping that you get will take people out of their experience so i'm creating a new way to make drinks through dilution and then using methods of dry ice liquid nitrogen uh, immersion blenders finding ways to create all those things you normally get the drink just in a very unconventional style but the drinks are threaded through as a part of the meal they're not uh, there's no cocktail menu it is just we'll start at the beginning chef says john i want the opening flavor to be a cocktail and i want it to have these flavors and i need this specific thing to come off the back end because i'm going to tie the first dish into that and so then i will go to work and everything's going to be much more um intentional is what i always use because it is everything matters to me when you're building things mm -hmm. 
but these are going to be much more high level serves um, based off of, of what the act is. My, my, my theater is coming out. Um, no, but, I, lo- I, I love it because like, it's now not, we're not using cocktails as a, as a compliment as something we do while we're doing something else. Yeah. But um, intentional, I think is a good word because it's, it's part of, it's part of the experience, part of what you're doing, which I love. Exactly. And it's just going to thread through the entire meal. Like there'll be, you'll get an ocean nogi that will be a cocktail or there'll be a side cocktail and it'll be spirited or unless you do not drink there'll be non-alcoholic versions of all of them we're very big about na drinks half of the menu at audrey downstairs is na so it's 10 drinks five spirited five non um all the drinks at the bar at audrey every night can be made non uh, chef's five years sober so i mean we're we're very we want people to be able to be included and so those options yeah, yeah, are always sure. going to be there and so we're doing that um I'll really dive into that probably in like 10 days of just like, that's all I'll do for a month is develop. Yeah. Listen, it's, it's wild. Uh, listen, I have loved this conversation. This is long overdue yes, uh, personally, uh, yeah. just because it's been a while <laughs> since we've uh, since we've reconnected in this way, um, uh, but professionally too. And I think uh, on behalf of all the listeners, I hope they got a lot out of this. Um, where can they go? We're going to c- include all the links for the restaurants. Where can people go to learn more about you, to connect with you personally? Is there a good place to do that? Inst- Instagram. Um at Johnny J O N N Y B Howard H O W A R D. I'm on there. That's that's kind of where I do. We'll see most of the work and stuff uh, for the restaurants. You can just actually, I think you can just go to chefshawnbrock.com and that will link out to all the other restaurants that we have. But yeah, awesome. Mainly just my Instagram account. Uh, I am working on a book. So I am working on a book currently on top of everything else. Well, that's cool. <laughs> so talk, uh, give us the quick, what can you tell us in 20 seconds about the book? Intentional drinking. It's about being intentional with your choices and understanding that every everything in a cocktail matters. And I'm going to do it with uh, an eye on Southern ingredients. Love it. Love it. Listen, uh, this has been great. I hope the listeners gotten a lot out of this. Again, all those links are going to be in the show notes. John, thank you for taking time out of your day. Uh, to join us here today. All right, two quick little things before I let you go. It's a hot summer day. What's your go-to drink? Daiquiri. It's a. It's cold. It's windy. It's snowy outside. You're inside by the fire. What do you What are you calling for? Uh, single malt. Neat. Excellent. I love it. And that's where we're going to leave it. John, thank you for being here. I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it. Once again, I want to thank John for taking time out of his day to chat with us. Again, all the links are in the show notes. Remember, Restaurant Recharge is starting. It's running through May and June. There is still time to join, right? We're just starting this week, so uh, you're not too late. You can catch up uh, on the on the first couple of days of work. I promise you it will make a difference. If you're interested, please reach out. In fact, just reach out to me per- uh, personally at this point. Chip at chipclose.com, C-H-I-P-K-L-O-S-E.com. Thank you very much for being here and I will see you next time.